Just recently, our state began enforcing a new law for its citizens. Thou shalt not use handheld devices and phones while driving. The law is plain enough. It's very straightforward. It's a good law as laws go. There is no confusion in its wording, and its intent is easy to understand. But what's potentially confusing and not always easy to grasp, especially with a new law, is how to follow it perfectly, how it actually applies in the day-to-day, -day, or what obedience looks like. If I can't hold my phone while I'm driving, what constitutes driving? Is it motion, or is it sitting behind the wheel? Does the vehicle have to be running for me to be driving? Can I answer my phone if it rings while I'm stopped at a stoplight? What if I'm sitting still in traffic in construction? If my phone is mounted somewhere in my vehicle and not held in my hand technically, can I still text? Can I summon Siri's help while I'm driving? If my phone is a source of my music while I drive, can I touch the screen to skip a track? If I'm using a GPS app for directions and I need to change my destination, do I have to pull over in order to do that? Well, there's a law and it's plain enough, right? And the law represents a value that is to be upheld. That is what we call the spirit of the law. That is its intention. And then there is the application of the law, what it really looks like, what it really means, how it is to be interpreted and enforced, how it applies to a myriad. Of different situations. Well, we're at that point in our study of Exodus, chapters 21, 22, and 23, a narrative that explains, by example, how Israel is to interpret, enforce, and apply the commandments that God has just given them. It's Sinai. They may seem straightforward and easy and to the point, but how do they actually play out in day-to-day -day living? That's Exodus 21, 22, 23. Now, admittedly, this is not the most thrilling section of Exodus. Some of you, dear ones, have been reading along. You've been keeping up with the sermon card. You knew where we were going, and so you opened the book, and you flipped through those pages. Some of you started to read that and said, I'm not reading this. And some of you are yet to read it, and I want to say, please do. Not now, but later. In the week, take some time to read through this. I'm telling you, it's not the most exciting stuff you'll read. In his commentary, Phil Riken writes this. He says, the first 20 chapters of Exodus tell the story of an epic adventure in which a people enslaved by their enemies make a daring escape into the wilderness. The next three chapters are somewhat less entertaining. He goes on to say, this section of Exodus, which the Bible calls the Book of the Covenant, does not make for very exciting reading unless one happens to be a lawyer. Bible scholar Godfrey Ashby is even more frank in his assessment of this turn that Exodus takes. Following chapter 20, he writes, boredom seems to set in at this point. Relieved only by the golden calf incident narrated in chapter 32. The impression is given that the writer of Exodus has now inserted into a brilliant narrative a series of rules and regulations that are of interest only to historians. 
you might be wondering, why are you telling us this? And the answer is, I want to set some reasonable expectations for the message I'm about to preach, because now you know what I'm dealing with, right? Right? So really what I want to do is I want to set this bar so low that I could probably trip over it and you all would be happy and not bored out of your skulls. And or if we got to the end of the message and you were bored out of your skulls, you would at least be able to say, well, he told us it was going to be boring. No, that's not why I'm telling you that, really. I'd be very selfish. I share these thoughts from scholars in part to admit that there are uh, portions of Scripture that certainly are more and less mesmerizing than others, but that all of Scripture is written for a purpose. And so while we may be inclined to skip over sections or just to read them lightly and think, well, there's no application and there's no implication here whatsoever, Romans 15.4 argues with that. It says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So there's a purpose for these things. We have to be careful, particularly, I think, as contemporary Christians and, and immersed as we are in a consumer culture, we have to be careful of falling into the trap of reading God's Word solely for our own entertainment or reading God's Word solely to find ourselves there. I think when you open up the Bible, you certainly want to say, Lord, I'm ready to hear your voice. And God, I want to see you. And I want to see your son in these pages. And if I'm in here, I guess I want to see that as well. But we're like number three, okay? We don't read that solely for ourselves. God's word is not given to us just to amuse us or to keep us interested. It's given to us to teach us, to reveal God to us, to help us see how God over time has dealt with people. It helps us to see him. And so some of these so-called dry sledding sections of Scripture, and there are some, we must know that minimally they will always tell us something about God. You may not understand it in the moment. You might be thumbing through the book of Leviticus and say, I'm not sure I get it. But if you look hard enough, you will find it. It is there. I promise you. It will tell you something about God, and it will almost always tell you something about the human condition these tough passages. But we come to a section that purportedly holds the interest of only lawyers and historians, and the majority of us are neither of those. What does it tell us about God? Well, if you read through Exodus 21, 22, and 23, you'll see right off the bat, it tells us that God is a God who has expectations of his people. That it matters to him how we conduct ourselves, how we live. You will find, too, that he has a heart to help his people. You will find that he knows us perfectly. And you will see that God is involved in the details of our lives. He is not just that God of the deists, you know, who made a world and sort of like the watchmaker cranked it up and lets it run. He's involved in the details of our lives. They matter to him. So that's, that's a little bit of what this section of Scripture would teach us about God. What does that same section teach us about us or about the human condition? This is where the picture is not quite so pretty. Because it tells us that if we aren't told not to abuse our servants, we may very well do it. And that if we inflict person, 
personal injury, we, we can't hide from our actions, even if we're tempted to do that, but we'll have to compensate. It tells us that if we take a life on purpose, we must pay with our life. And it also says that if our enemy has a problem, we should help our enemy. And that won't be our natural inclination, will it? It says that we have to keep control of our animals. Now, I realize you probably don't have a bull that's going to get out and gore somebody. You may have a pit bull, and if you've ever watched Judge Judy, that's not a good thing. This is, this is probably one of Judge Judy's favorite commands, that we have to keep control of our animals and pay for the damage they do. Section tells us that we must submit to authority, and we all know how we love that is that we should be holy. It says that we're supposed to treat foreigners and aliens the same way that we have been treated by God, not as second class or undeserving. So in short, the book of the covenant affirms minimally that God is good and God is holy and man is rebellious and sinful. In the giving of the laws, we're reminded of the height of God's holiness and the depth of humanity's fallenness. And because we know the whole story, we also find here a hint of our great need for a Savior. Read this way, the civil laws of the Book of the Covenant, though written for a people then and there and not applicable to us here and now, still have relevance and implications. The worth of the Book of the Covenant for us today is not in giving us specific standards to follow. We have our own civil laws and codes to abide by, don't we? And most of us would agree we have too many of them. I was just complaining to Tim this weekend that I no longer know how to transport my grandchildren. I, you need to know, I don't know how old they are, let alone how tall they are, how much they weigh, and which way they're supposed to be facing in a vehicle. All I can think is that I drove to Otis in my grandfather's lap when I was this tall. I think I drove. And we made it. But that surely is another sermon. Pardon me. So we have our own civil laws and codes that we have to abide by, and we do have to abide by them. The scripture is clear about that. Unless they cause us to violate a biblical principle, we have to submit to that authority. So this isn't for us here and now, but nonetheless, there are implications and applications for us. We should read this with an eye to what it tells us about God and what it tells us about humanity. So how are we going to approach it this morning? What are we going to do with this thing? Well, we're, we're not going to read it all, I can tell you that, but I do want you to read it. I encourage you to do that if you haven't already. We're going to zoom out for a few minutes here remaining, and we're going to take the larger view, the overview, really, to understand what is happening at this time to the Israelites and in the book of Exodus. What is going on here in this part of Exodus? And I'm going to simplify it this way. God is making a nation, and a nation needs laws, and laws serve a purpose. Okay, that's what's going on. God is making a nation, and a nation needs laws, and laws serve a purpose. First, God is making a nation. Early in our study, uh, we saw how the Israelites were in the wilderness, and at that time we said God is making for himself a people, right? God is testing the Israelites uh, in the wilderness when they're thirsty, when they're hungry, when they're worried. He's testing them 
in this journey so that they will learn to trust him and so that they will learn to uh, abide by what he says. They will put their faith in him. So God is making a people in the wilderness. And here we come to Sinai and God is making a nation. He's making a nation. He told them, it was recorded in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, Israel, if you will obey my voice, if you will keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Those words constitute a covenant. A covenant comes with promises and obligations. It is an if-then proposition. Israel, if you will listen to my voice and you will obey all that I command, you will be blessed. So what does Israel need to know? They need to know what obedience looks like. This is the covenant. If you obey me, okay, God, what does it mean to obey you? And that's what the book of the covenant is all about. God explaining to Israel what it means, what it looks like to obey him. Now, have you ever been given instructions to do something with no idea how to do it? Somebody wants you to do something and they give you a task, but you have no idea how to do it. It's very frustrating, right? So God here is saying to the Israelites, this is, this is how to do it. This is what it looks like. Okay? These are the things that if you do them, will make you distinct from all other peoples, will make you this holy nation. God is making a nation. 19th century Methodist theologian Adam Clark writes this. He said they should be a nation... One people, firmly united among themselves, living under their own laws, powerful because united, and acting under the direction and blessing of God. They should be a holy nation, saved from their sins, righteous in their conduct, holy in their hearts, every external right being not only a significant ceremony, but also a means of conveying light and life, grace and peace to every person who conscientiously used it. Thus they should be both a kingdom, having God for their governor, and a nation, a multitude of peoples connected together, not a scattered, disordered, and disorganized people, but a royal nation, using their own rights, living under their own laws, subject in religious matters only to God, and in things civil, to every ordinance of man, for God's sake. God is making a nation. Now, a nation needs laws. We, we might take issue with that a little bit. We've already covered uh, on numerous occasions how we don't always like to be told what to do. But for a nation to thrive, it must live under the rule of law. In the absence of laws, or when laws are disrespected, when they are not followed, what do people do? They take the law into their own hands. They become a law unto themselves. They do what they want, what an individual wants in any given moment, irrespective of how that impacts anybody else. This is the chaos, the moral disorder that is written about in the book of Judges, where it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody did whatever they wanted to. And the result, of course, was rampant wickedness. Lawlessness, we read, will be a prevalent characteristic of the end times. Lawlessness will be a prevalent characteristic in the winding down of society. 
People will revert to this idea of doing whatever is right in their own eyes, whatever they want to do. They will not follow the law. Enforcement officers will not follow the law. If this sounds familiar to you, it should, because it's America in 2019, which is the direction that we are heading in. Lawlessness, where we have laws on the books, but people just decide for their own righteous reasons that they are not going to follow them. People at all levels. Right? That's kind of where we're at. And what does Jesus say? He says, because men's hearts grow cold, because lawlessness is increased, men's hearts will grow cold. And isn't that what we're dealing with today? A callousness towards one another. An idea that I'm going to get mine, and if that makes it so that you can't get yours, that's your problem. That's the callousness that lawlessness brings. That's what happens when you don't live under a rule of law. That's what happens when you're a law unto yourself. That's what happens when flawed, sinful human beings decide they know what is best for themselves. For Israel to thrive, it would have to live under a rule of law. Or as we have said many times about our own nation and our Pledge of Allegiance, under God. For them to live under law would be to live under the rule of God. Now, living under the rule of law, especially God's law, is a good thing because laws serve a purpose. Let's just touch on four purposes this morning, four designs for the laws that God gave. First, the laws of God were designed to teach God's people how to live. And we might think, well, don't they know how to live? But we should think about this. First, it matters to God how we live, right? I've already touched on that. That's probably the most important point of the book of, of the covenant, I think. That's our takeaway from all the rules and, and the regulations that God delivered at that moment is that it matters to God how his people live. But Israel needed to learn how to live. Why is that? Let's not forget they were slaves for how long? Over four centuries, right? Israel needed these laws from God. They're not just a fledgling nation. They are only recently free. They don't know how to get along. They don't know how to live with each other. They don't know how to make decisions for themselves. People have been making decisions for them as long as most of them, all of them had been alive, right? They don't know how to manage their property. They haven't had property. They don't know how to seek justice. Injustice has been their normal for their whole existence. God is giving them all kinds of ideas about this is how you live together with one another in harmony. So laws are given by God to teach God's people how to live and how to live in the best way possible, how to have the best life. That's part of the thing, by the way, of the Levitical laws that I mentioned. When you get to Leviticus and you start reading some of those ceremonial laws and you go, seriously, is this the word of God? That this person has to stay outside the camp for what? For how long? Why? You see God in his infinite wisdom, well beyond anything any man could produce, saying he already knows the health implications of certain conditions, and he's making it so his people can be as healthy as can be. Why is that? Because he wants you to live the best life possible. What's the best life possible? The life in complete obedience to him. He's the guy who wrote the manual. He ought to be able to tell us how to live. Amen? That's all this stuff is. That's all it is. It isn't God imposing an awful arbitrary will on anybody. It's God saying, if you want to be blessed, right? That's what he said. If you'll follow my voice, this is how to do it. It's also, perhaps most importantly, uh, not just that God wants us to live our best life, but that he does intend for us to live 
for his glory. God set the Israelites free so that they could glorify him. While they were slaves, they could not bring him his due glory. And you know, that's the same reason that God has set you and I free from sin. That in Christ, we are free to give God glory. Whereas before, in our former lives, we were glorifying anything but God, right? So, so we have a real parallel here, uh, us and the people of Israel. The law... Uh, taught the Israelites how to live with each other, but it also taught them how to live for God. A second purpose of the law, we touched on it last week, Exodus 20.20, the laws of God are designed to serve as a deterrent to sin. That's one of the functions of law in society, to deter people from from committing crime, uh, from doing wrong things, bad things. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote this, The moral law is the copy of God's will, our spiritual directory. It shows us what sins to avoid, what duties to pursue. That sounds very much like a Puritan, doesn't it? God showed himself to Israel in such power and terrible glory for a very specific reason, that his people might fear him and that the fear of him might not depart from them. In other words, so that they might not sin. So, the law and the clarity of expectation and the threat of punishment that the law carries is a deterrent to sin, but we do have to be careful. It cannot change the evil heart of man. The law cannot change the evil heart of man. I'm going to get to that more in a minute, but it can influence it. Fear of consequences at least makes most people think twice about what they're doing if we know that we're bound to, to get into some kind of trouble with something, if we get found out, it makes us think twice. It makes us not choose that course of action. For instance, you may really, really want to text and drive. You've been doing it for some time now. It's just a habit of yours, okay? You are tempted to answer that phone with your hands on the wheel. But there is a $230 deterrent hanging over your head. It's a ticket. It's a fine. And it's like, I, I don't think this phone call's worth it. I do, I'd like to talk to this person. I'd like to te- respond to this text. But $230? bucks? No. Besides that, there's all the free advertising you get in the Ellsworth American. When you break the rules and you go to court... And everybody knows. And isn't that, I mean, there's two, two places we turn to in the pages, right? The paper. Court news and obituary. <laughs> the laws of God are designed, thirdly, to reveal God to the world. So look, laws reflect the value of those who create the laws. Laws reflect the values, the character of their creators. Laws reflect the morality of the people who make the laws. That's why there's so much jockeying all the time in Congress, right? You understand that. Because they're the ones writing the laws, and whoever has the most power, and whoever can get these things through, will be able to legislate their morality. That, by the way is a good reason for Christians to be involved in the political process. Because that is our right. And that is even an expectation. That we would be involved in the political process, 
that we would cast a vote in line with our beliefs and conscience, and that we would prayerfully hope a representative, elect a representative to represent our values as that person makes laws. Laws reflect the values and the morality of those who create them, which means the Ten Commandments reflect, embody, codify the values of God. What God says is moral, what God deems as important. And when Israel dutifully obeyed the Ten Commandments and the applications and the interpretations, the implications that we find in the Book of the Covenant, they would behave in ways that were unique and they would behave in ways that were different from anybody else in the world. And that is not to say that the surrounding cultures didn't have laws. They did have laws, but there's a difference between their laws and Israel's laws, and that is this. Israel's laws have been delivered to them directly by God himself. These are not the concoctions of man, the best ideas of people. This is God himself speaking to his people and telling them what they can and what they cannot do. And a little while later, as we get into the story, we're going to find that God not only speaks, he writes. This is his word. And this word is given to Israel by the supreme law giver. More than just rules to follow, as commentator Tim Chester puts it, the law is given to shape Israel's life so that they display the character of God. In this way, the law is missional in intent. So Israel, by the way she lived, would be a holy nation, and through obedience to the standards of God, would bear his image to the world. Now, Israel here is not just a budding nation, beloved. They are also, listen, they are also an image of the church. This is the same task that God gave Israel, is the same task for every church and every professing Christian. Like the Israelites, every believer has been brought to God by God for a reason. And Peter tells us what that reason is. That we have been purchased in order to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we also have been saved to bring glory to God. We haven't just been saved for ourselves, we're saved for him and saved to serve. Revelation 5 says that Jesus, by his blood, has ransomed the people from every tribe and tongue, every people and nation, and made us a kingdom of priests to God. The church today, under the new covenant in Christ's blood, serves the purpose that God promised Israel to be a kingdom. That is, to be a group of folks uh, collected under the rule and the reign of God. And priests who present the world to God and God to the world in intercession, in, in proclamation, and in proper worship, the worship God deserves. That is what we're for. This is how God reveals himself to people. Listen, God, it is God's way to reveal himself to people through people. It is God's way to reveal himself to people through people. That's why it matters how you live. That's why some people will come to Jesus. That's why we can remember in prayer and thanksgiving those who modeled that for us. They didn't just walk the walk, they talked the talk. And the beauty and the truth of the gospel was modeled in their lives in such a way that it was undeniable. And through those people, God reached these people. That's why it matters how we live. 
We are here to display his glory. We are here to make much of him. We are not here to make much of ourselves. We are here to call attention to him, not to call attention to ourselves. If we can do this job, if we can shine this light that Jesus has given and says, don't hide it under a basket, God will be glorified. People will be saved. Because the gospel saves. Amen? Amen. It's our job to display God's glory. By following God's law and obedience, we display His character to the world. This attractive, beautiful, caring, loving, merciful, wise, just character of God. Fourthly, the laws of God were designed to reveal our inability to perfectly keep the laws of God. So, so we're skipping ahead a little, like to the New Testament. But this is how it ends up, and this is the era in which we live. The law of God is designed to reveal our inability to perfectly keep the law. Be righteous. That is to be right with God eternally. Israel would have to keep God's law perfectly. And that was their intent. Right? Twice, and at least two occasions at least, all the words the Lord has spoken we will do is how they responded. Moses shares this is what God wants, and they said all the words the Lord has spoken we will do. What great intent they had. You probably wake up with a similar intent every day, don't you? I do. I'm going to do it today, God. Follow today. I'm not going to blow it today. I'll do what I can today. I think today is the day. How far do we get into that day? But anyway, it is our intent, is it not, to follow the Lord, to follow the law, and to say, yes, we'll do it. The problem was Israel couldn't keep it. They couldn't keep the law. By the time we get to chapter 32, we're going to see a hugely egregious transgression uh, of the people. Forsaking of God. The Israelites vowed to keep the law, but they couldn't. And that's just like you and I when we try to do the right things and we still fail. The Apostle Paul, of all people, wrestled with it. You would think that he would have his stuff together. But he's willing to say, the things that I want to do, I don't. things I don't want to do, I do. Wretched man that I am. We can't even keep our own laws. We can't even keep our own standards. That's how fallen we are. That's how sinful we are. So the law exposes the bent in us because it provides a standard from which we deviate. Romans 3.20 says, through the law comes knowledge of the sin. We can't know that we're off course if we don't know what the course is. We can't know that we're out of bounds if we don't know what inbounds is. And so the law provides us with God's course. The, the law provides us with God's boundary. Okay? So here's the thing. He draws the lines. God draws the lines. We cross them. He draws the lines and we cross them. Cross them knowingly. We look at that no trespassing sign and we don't back into that property. We walk right into it. 
Why is that? Because the law cannot change the wicked heart of man. We know the law. We can even intend to abide by the law. It doesn't change us. Donald Gray Barnhouse explains it this way. He says, the law of God is like a mirror. Now, the purpose of a mirror is to reveal to you that your face is dirty. But the purpose of the mirror is not to wash your face. When you look in a mirror and find that your face is dirty, you do not then reach to take the mirror off the wall and attempt to rub it on your face as a cleansing agent. The purpose of the mirror is to drive you to the water. But where is the water? How can we be made clean? How are we cleansed? St. Augustine said this. He said, The usefulness of the law lies in convicting man of his infirmity and moving him to call upon the remedy of grace, which is in Christ. Martin Luther said, After the law has humbled, terrified, and completely crushed you, so that you are on the brink of despair, then see to it that you know how to use the law correctly, for its function and use is not only to disclose the sin and wrath of God, but also to drive us to Christ. The function of the law, in the end, is to drive us to Christ. Christ, the one who did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The one who did what we could not and kept the law perfectly. The one who died in our place, suffering the death we deserve. As a sacrifice for our sins, taking on himself our unrighteousness and giving us his righteousness that we might be acceptable, that we might be reconciled to our holy God. You see, in the end, the law leads us to God. The law of God leads us to the grace of God on eagle's wings, brought you out the house of slavery and I brought you to myself. And though we must approach holy God as helpless, hopeless lawbreaker, he meets us in the person of his son who opens his arms to rebels and grants forgiveness, peace, reconciliation to all who would receive. It is that forgiveness and peace and reconciliation that we remember now in the Lord's Supper.